This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thanks, everyone. I want to thank Susanna Scott and Ron Rice for inviting me to participate. Uh, and thanks to all the other speakers and everyone in the audience for being here and for your interest in science and sustainability. I'm very honored to be here today. It's good to be back at UCSB. Um, I do want to ask a, a quick question. Anyone here, uh, you know, a scientist or a student of science or want to be a student of science? Any scientists in the room? Oh, that's good. Yes, thank Great. Okay. Um, now, if you didn't raise your hand, don't worry. You're still implicated in the, in the project of science, um, and which forms the epistemological ground for, for, for everything we do, actually, in modernity. And this, this conference on sustainability will help each of us understand the importance of communicating science to the public. But let me address the scientists first. Um, you probably don't remember the moment you decided not to become an investment banker. Um, but the truth is, Instead of making hundreds of millions of dollars on shaky financial instruments, you decided to use cutting-edge instruments to explore the boundaries of our knowledge and expand the envelope of human experience. Now, most of this conference will be looking at how scientists communicate with others. And my, my talk it looks at how scientists communicate with their peers in the academy. Also, I'm an anthropologist by training, so I'm going to focus on important cultural aspects of the communication of science knowledge within the academy. Now, I have to say here, science is big. It's, it's complex. It resists being spoken of in the singular. And uh, so I can't claim to speak for every discipline in this talk, and I'm happy to talk with you later about your own experience. Um, but let me start with this example, which I think a lot of people in the room can relate to. Now, science posters are emblematic of how science has so far failed to move into the digital era and the networked era. Let me ask any, anyone in this room ever give a paper, I mean a poster at a meeting, ever? Okay, it's like everyone, okay. Now let me take you back to the 60s. In this case, it's the 1960s. And way back in 68, say, you could see a lot of things, okay? There's a lot of stuff going on in 68. Um, and you could also find posters, mostly about concerts and, you know, or, or maybe outside of cinemas. But you could not attend a poster session at a science conference. You could not see a science poster because they didn't exist yet. Now, people went to science conferences to give talks or to listen to other people give talks. But here's the problem. Between 1950 and 1970, the number of scientists going through university education and getting jobs nearly tripled. Now, poster sessions were an attempt by academic clubs, those hundreds of professional societies, to deal with this fact. In the early 1970s, academic professional societies started offering poster sessions at their conferences to handle the overflow of people who couldn't be scheduled to give talks. Now, the American Geophysical Fall uh, Union Fall Meeting is a kind of a monstrous example of what happened next. Now, it's not hard to understand why they still do this. Um, Nicholas Rowe, a, a researcher in Finland, has been working to calculate the aggregated scope of science and engineering poster activities worldwide. And his annual figures come to about 1.1 million posters every year, costing more than 2 billion US dollars to make and show. That's about a quarter of NSF's research budget. Okay, and not to mention all the trees, right? Uh, um, although they make Kinko's very happy. 
Um, these million-plus ephemeral physical objects, what we were surrounded by right now, um, these posters stuck on boards for a couple hours consume nearly 40,000-person years of effort annually. Now, UCSB as a campus has about 1,000 faculty, okay? So imagine the entire faculty doing nothing but designing and showing posters for the entire year. Now picture 40 UCSBs worth of effort, okay? And that's, that's, uh, that's the effort it takes every year for scientists and engineers to produce and show posters. And remember that each poster will be viewed by an average of fewer than a dozen people. On the other hand, there is normally beer, okay? So, um, and, and there's social interaction at the poster. Now, some years back, I received some funding from the Sloan Foundation to pilot a software platform to support digital poster comments. Now, having some success with this, the next step would require a few years of, of negotiating with dozens of professional associations from the IEEE to hundreds of smaller ones. And the funding for that adventure is still unrealized. Now, posters represent just one of several science communication practices that totally beg to be disrupted, reconfigured, and reimagined given our current access to digital resources and networks. Now, what if a million posters were added to a digital repository every year where they could be discovered and mined for information and made available to the entire planet? Now, until Scholar gets funded, there are places where you can do the, the right thing, as I would say, and uh, pop your poster up on the web for other people to find. And Figshare uh, is just one space. Uh, Faculty of 1,000 does some other things, too, and people put them up on, on Flickr and elsewhere. Now, early last month, I had the, uh, the great pleasure, and, and somewhat to my dismay, um, the opportunity to uh, listen to Cameron Leyland's talk on uh, communication in science, where he stole you know, half of my ideas. Now, he's, he's a, or actually, uh, he, he gave a wonderful talk uh, at the Data One Project webinar, which is uh, UCSB's a partner there. And uh, his talk describes three ways that the communication process, uh, practices of science have failed to scale. And he also pointed to new directions where a network social, uh, I mean, science communities might be able to regain the qualities that were and that maybe should again be the hallmarks of science. Now, let me channel some of Nayland's insights and add a few of my own. First, he grounded his history of science um, not back to the history of publication, but back to the original community in the 60s. And this, this time I'm talking about the 1660s. And the process, the original Invisible College in England developed for what they called natural philosophy. And this is a time when the novel concept of sharing information was articulated against you know, uh, the existing culture of hoarding and hiding knowledge that was practiced by alchemists. And Boyle himself was an alchemist. But then he became the champion for what we might call open alchemy, okay, or now just science. Um, now, the Royal Society was formed in 1660, and the society promoted this new method, what we now call the scientific method, that was characterized by open communication. Coming from the publication side of things now, uh, since Nayland is at the Public uh, Library of Science, he points to three communication uh, challenges that science actually managed to solve really early on in its infancy. Um, now, these things are... Uh, are listed here, and let's let's go through them. Uh, completeness. 
Boyle Science attempted to capture the entire process of doing science so that others could copy this. And even if you couldn't try it yourself, you could know from the record that it was possible to do this. In terms of access, at the founding moment, with the help of the transactions of the Royal Society and other new science journals and books, the goal was to publish and distribute a record of all the science done anywhere, from observations to experiments to findings. Civility. Um, included in that original science record um, and, and in, the, in the transactions would be public critiques of the methods and findings. And being public, they were expected to follow a shared concern for decorum, even if they were highly, highly critical. So Nayland then goes on to t describe what happened in the late 20th century, um, where this great scaling issue uh, caused a failure. And, for example... You know, there's this tremendous increase in science activity. There's a tremendous increase in uh, data volume and experimental complexity. And there's also a need for advanced computational software. And the funding, although it did also accelerate, didn't accelerate as much as these other uh, issues. So let's look at these more recent communication failures due to scaling. The first one is completeness. Now, the scientific record today you know, grossly lacks completeness in, in, in many arenas, and, uh, and this, this is a real issue for a, a lot of people, and it's, it's certainly an issue for reproducible science. You know, what's clear now is that science no longer knows what science knows. Um, in terms of access and distribution, there are lots of elements to this. I'll just touch on a few. You know, we can talk about paywalled science journals that still maintain the arbitrary scarcity of the printed page. We can talk about research libraries that are still the deep pockets for for-profit publishers and the, and, the, and the lack of publication outcomes for software, data, and, and null results. So a lot of science that's being done is never published in any effective manner or put in a repository. In terms of civility, you know, I'm not going to go into the well-known issues of closed peer review, but, I mean, come on, just last month, um, I, I think most of you probably saw this, right? Um, now, one of the solutions to this would be open review, okay, just like in the old days. And a few years back, uh, down at NCS, uh, Cameron, uh, Nalen, and I, and, and uh, a bunch of other people, uh, put together a paper, and this paper is now up on, uh, on PeerJ, uh, where you can take a look at it and find uh, good reasons for open review. Now, science stands at a critical inflection point today. We are at the door of the fourth paradigm of science, where big data and open networking can remake how science is done. Even though science is an early enlightenment project housed in late medieval social organizations, there is still hope. And this hope is open science. What is open science? A lot of people will disagree you know, what goes in there, but at least we're talking about it. In fact, last fall here at UCSB, or actually down on the beach at the uh, Red Lion or whatever it is now, um, there was a, an open science hackathon uh, that was hosted. And the vision of open science that emerged from that event, and that's been emerging for the last, say, 20 years from many places, is grounded on a culture of sharing. A lot of the discussion about open science has been focused on open, focused on open science access uh, publications. But it's really important to note how 
that last step, those closed publications, that private property at the end of the road, impacted communication styles, tactics, and opportunities all the way back through the data streams and the workflows of science. When you have to deliver your idea as a proven piece of knowledge and a package of intellectual property to a publisher and to your funder, at the end of the process, you start to hide what you think you know from the day you first discover this. Private property publication is like a dam on the communication stream that alters the entire upstream environment. And so when this dam is broken, new practices and cultural logics become available. Now at the hackathon, uh, it took a bunch of mostly postdocs to, to come up with this poster, what they thought open science meant. And this new logic looks remarkably like the culture of science in past centuries. So all we really need to do is reinvent the founding moments, the learning communities, and the communication skills for a science that's reconnected to its roots and fully networked across the planet. Now, the move to open access publications is only the starting point for open science. The goal is to share not only publications, but data and software, workflows, reviews, and even ideas from the very spark of new intellection to the community-reviewed outcomes of a rigorous and reproducible scientific process, all the steps, the tools and methods, the experiments that failed, even those ideas that were never funded can be part of open science. Now, most people talk about open science as a process of pulling the goods of science, scientists away from the for-profit publishers and into public repositories. More recently, there's a move for open repositories for research data products, right, that the, all the agencies now have a mandate that your, your data has to go into public repositories, and also uh, for open access science software. Now, Nalen also blogs, and in his blog, he notes that the current system at least offers a marketplace for some people to make a lot of money and for other people to get tenure. And he's concerned that... Uh, that in this new system, those marketplaces could disappear with nothing to actually replace them. So he resists that we take a good look at the goods of science. So let's see. Up until the middle of the last century, science, scientists gleaned new knowledge from the objects of study in the real world and transformed these into goods within the academy. And then the academy published their own journals designed to be read by their own members. Now, this is, this is kind of a typical graph that social scientists do about stuff where you create two axes and then you, you, know, you put things in quarter, quadrants. And so uh, one of them is, is rivalrous goods okay, and non-rivalrous goods. A rivalrous good is one that if you have it, someone else cannot have it. Okay? Now, the only person laughing here is actually Hermione, so, um, and, and someone's going to be disappointed. An excludable good is one that you can put a fence around excluding others, and even, you know, charge money for it. So private property is rivalrous and excludable, and public property is non-rivalrous and non-excludable. Now, the real world down in the bottom left is rivalrous only in the sense that the, the scientist that discovers something first gets to claim that discovery. So what happened? Okay. When the Academy used private publishers to scale up its published output, it transformed its club goods into private goods, and scientists were forced to buy their own research results. Now, commonly, the view of open science is just this large arrow that's pulling back from the private goods and 
popping these into public repositories. Okay? Um, but there's more to that. And I just want to spend the last few minutes on, on what really open science needs to do. This new science commons and these emergent, expanding open resources for data, software, and research results can only realize the potential of their own network effect when scientists are able to manage and mine these commons effectively. These science commons will provide a whole new object of study, although it's not that new. NCS has been doing synthesis for a long time. Um, and a radical return to the old science culture of sharing. And within a decade, there will be hundreds of repositories for software, data, and research results. And we're going to need to work together to mine these resources for new knowledge. And we must build new tools for this endeavor and new stewardship practices. And we'll need new science communities capable of transdisciplinary work and dedicated to a common vision of open science. Community-led, volunteer-run science organizations are at the center of how the sciences can grow the communications and stewardship skills to pull value from these new science repositories. Now, a pioneer in this effort was the Federation of Earth Science Information Partners. And one reason they had to jump on this is that they were mining uh, data that's been openly served by government uh, archives for decades. So for years now, they've been building... Uh, as volunteers, sort of new practices on how to use these data. And then, more recently, the Research Data Alliance. Anyone here know about the Research Data Alliance? Okay. Yeah, which is, uh, is started up uh, in Europe, and there's a, uh, the NSF is sponsoring the U.S. version of this. Um, now, it's a little early to tell if the research data is grand scope. They cover all the disciplines, even the social sciences. Uh, maybe even the humanities, okay, if, if that will be sustainable. Now, EarthCube is the NSF's latest attempt at getting data and domain scientists to work together. Now, for some years, I've heard government agencies and their leads stand up, you know, in front of groups and say something like this, we need to transform how we do science. And this transformation, they use, you know, usually pointing us, is half technical and half social. Well, they don't ever mention culture, of course, so I've just pulled half of the social into cultural here. And when the next proposal round is opened, I can guarantee that all the money goes into the technical. So logically, this would mean that we've already solved a whole bunch of the technology problems, and what's left is mostly social and cultural. And NASA and NOAA have started to figure this out, and NSF is trying to figure out how to start figuring this out. But how much would it really cost to move that cultural needle and to build a launching pad for open science? How much do you think that's half the problem? Well, it doesn't cost very much. It costs about half of 1% of the research budget um, to tackle half the problem. Now, there are many reasons why funding agencies should be attracted to funding volunteer science organizations. And I put a lot of these reasons on, on my blog, Virtual Democracy, that you can look at. The return on investment is spectacular over time. All the agency needs to do is fund the support organization, and the real work is done by the volunteers. And let me make a statement here that needs to be tested further, but it's already evident in open software uh, arenas. Only community-governed science organizations can reliably engineer new internal cultural practices that they can spread across the academy. These models for the culture of sharing are integral to the future of open science. 
There are also some things that only volunteers can accomplish because volunteering opens up a whole framework of interpersonal communication, emotional attachment, and the trust that supports the qualities of sharing. And without widespread sharing, the new open science content repositories will fail to realize their potential, and the science will lose the one great opportunity it now has to actually know what science knows. Well, what about rivalry in science? Okay. Is that always a bad thing? I don't think so. I mean, we do need science posters. Okay? We need a new kind of science poster. And I want to thank Kevin for this information here. Uh, rivalry over publicly shared support for competing hypotheses is just good competition, and it makes a good story. Okay? Besides, the glory of being smart should be right up there with the glory of being strong or fast or pretty or whatever popular cultures decide it should be of value. In fact, I'm going to close with the idea, I think, maybe the only thing I say today that everyone in the room can agree with. Perhaps the best result of forming new volunteer-run science organizations is that these provide forums for scientists to talk together talk with each other and to work to develop those stories that they can use. These conversations can then be the foundation for engaging with others and opening the entire discourse of science to the broader society. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I am very appreciative to Susanna Scott and Ron Rice for inviting me to be here. Uh, when I was here as a, stu as a student, one of the things that we worried a lot about was the tar that we were bringing back from the beach on the bottoms of our feet because of the oil spill that was in the channel. I think a lot of things have changed, but uh, there's still a concern for... Uh, the environment around locally and also globally, I, I think it's very nice to see that uh, concern continues. Now, I want to talk about storytelling today. It's a critical component of the research that's done in my center, MediaX at Stanford University, from several standpoints. First of all, it's very important for good stories to be told about the great science that's done. That's important for getting the word out, for dissemination, but it's also important for getting funding for the next round of research. It's also very important for the industry members who fund MediaX to be able to tell good stories about the science that they uh, see coming from the center. And so my interest in storytelling, especially science storytelling, has come from both of those directions. Last fall, September, <clears throat> we heard a lot about uh, the UN Climate Summit. We heard much more about it, I think, because of the almost half a million people who expressed their interest uh, by showing up in person where they were visible to cameras. And that was not only in New York City, but that was around the world. <clears throat> Over 20 other cities participated in this demonstration. In my office, uh, one of my co-workers had, with her family, pooled resources in their neighborhood so that one family could go and participate. And while that family was in New York, the families that were um, in, 
in the Bay Area were talking about the, the event. They were as if they were participating. They had helped someone else go. So San Francisco is a long way away for sure, but uh, that participation through other people was instrumental in helping them um, uh, participate virtually. Now, <clears throat> we are a storytelling species. Uh, People have been telling stories to uh, warn each other, to teach each other, to help each other for centuries. And stories are so useful because they engage and they hold our attention. They create the context for understanding and they enhance the recall of the information. But we know that an individual's participation in the story is determined by their own self-created version of the story. And that's a theme of my comments today. Engagement does not guarantee influence, but it does make it possible. Now, we are hardwired for story, but what gets into the conscious mind is not necessarily what's delivered to the sensory organs. The human brain has a make-sense mandate, and before it even reaches your conscious mind, your brain turns information into story. It distorts the information that's coming in in order to make it make sense. <clears throat> this has uh, a functional uh, role in the evolution of people, but it recognizes the familiar. We know from research that your brain turns off on cliches. The story that you tell may not be the story that is heard. What gets into the conscious mind is a self-created, story-based version of the original material that's been distorted in story form in order to make it make sense. So the personal context of the meaning, the personal experience of the story elements are critical for the listener. The science of storytelling has shown that people hear or read or experience stories, that they translate their own experiences, their own contexts, and they infuse the stories with the details of their own experiences. Uh, applying effective story structure to your information can minimize that distortion, but it's critical to understand this uh, effect and the psychology of storytelling has offered us many cues. Some of this research has been done by, uh, we have a number of researchers at Stanford uh, who are active in this research, and I know there are many at UCSB as well. But some of the early studies that showed that people relate to information that they receive through the screen as if there is a person on the other side of that screen with whom they are interacting is very important to pay attention to. And we know that in computer-mediated communication, that if the person perceives that they are communicating with an individual, a completely different part of their brain is activated than if they perceive that they're communicating with a computer. Uh, we know that the person's attention to um, media is determined by their sense of familiarity with it. And so, as people are interacting face-to-face in, -face in stories, we understand that there's an interpretive issue that's going on. But as they are interacting online, 
with stories, we understand that there are uh, determinants, there are perceptions of interacting with a person, interacting with a machine, how familiar uh, that uh, other is that will influence the way that the story is received. New technologies, and some of them developed uh, right here in Santa Barbara, have uh, made it possible to uh, make that storyteller and that story even more personal and more, and to adapt it to the audience. Uh, Jeremy Balenson has worked a lot with the um, human through computer to human interaction, but also with the um, technologies that will allow uh, the face that you see on the screen to be more like yourself. And people love familiarity. And so if that person, that imagined other, is more like you, you're more likely to be persuaded by them to go along with what they say, to do what they ask you to do. And this is an important thing to understand, especially as we move into the world of virtual reality, which is coming fast. I think by the time the holiday season comes around in 2015, there will be not just the four that we know about now, but probably many more head-mounted displays that will allow people to be immersed in the story that you are telling them. And we've begun some experiments on this, looking at, for example, uh, the empathy that an individual has with the environment and with other people when they are immersed in a story in a virtual reality sense. Being immersed virtually into a coral reef and to uh, see, even in a five- or ten-minute period, the impact of ocean acidification and what that does, or to virtually be immersed in cutting down with haptic aids uh, trees in order to create paper. We are learning that um, the immersion in these experiences what the eyes see, the mind believes, and people can uh, gain an additional awareness of their impact on the environment through mediated experiences. Well, we wonder how can we influence those experiences in the best way? What is the story structure that we can use to engage and to persuade uh, people? One of the things that we know is that there is a paradox of suspense. Um, that these findings from uh, affective neuroscience show that from second to second, from millimeter to millimeter, there is a resolution in the brain of anticipating good and bad events. And this is functional. Uh, One of the researchers, Brian Knudsen, has found that uh, the best engagement occurs when the premise is positive, and this is especially relevant for science communication, when it's significant, and when there's some uncertainty in it. In other words, the implications for storytelling are to hint at the conclusion early, but to see doubt and dynamically string along uncertainty as a part of the storytelling, and importantly, to promote action because activity influences choice. There is an example of this that I'll show you. The film has been mentioned several times, but this particular segment of it uh, illustrates this paradox of suspense quite well. So let me cross my fingers. This is the difference between a nice day and having a mile of ice over your head. Keep that in mind when you look at this fact. 
carbon dioxide having never gone above 300 parts per million, here is where CO2 is now. Way above where it's ever been as far back as this record will measure. Now, if you'll bear with me, I want to really emphasize this point. I, the, the crew here has tried to teach me how to use this contraption here, so if I don't kill myself, I'll... It's already but right you here. Seen this yet. You don't know. Look how far above the natural cycle this is. And we've done that. But ladies and gentlemen, in the next 50 years, really in less than 50 years, it's going to continue to go up. When some of these children who are here are my age, here's what it's going to be in less than 50 years. You've heard of off the charts. <laughs> Within less than 50 years, it'll be here. And so they're hinting at uncertainty and uh, creating uh, a sense of anticipation was very important in the building the suspense into that moment of building the emotion into the hockey stick. Now, <clears throat> misinformation travels as fast as truth does, and it's really hard to reel back in. Uh, we know that norms emerge through a social process, and once a critical mass is reached, it's very hard to make a difference. But uh, in this film, Contagion, which is uh, written by Scott Burns, a Media X distinguished visiting scholar, uh, uh, there is an element of science and, in fact, uh, the film was, has been lauded as very true to science in every respect. But there was a critical point, um, and in asking Scott about his intentions in writing this, he said, I knew that if there was just one thing, one piece of scientific information that I wanted to communicate in this film, it was this piece. And so let me show that to you. I'm not leaving you. We have 47 cases and 8 deaths as of 5 this afternoon. It's a weekend. These numbers might be low. People are staying home for a couple of days, see if they get any better. So at this point, I think we have to believe this is respiratory. Maybe fomites, too. What's that, fomites? Uh, it refers to transmission from surfaces. The average person touches their face 2 or 3,000 times a day. 2 or 3,000 times a day? 3 to 5 times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, elevator buttons, and each other. Those things become fomites. Is this something we want to release to the press, respiratory and fomites? And how's the public going to react to that? Hard to say. A plastic shark in a movie will keep people from getting in the ocean, but a warning on the side of a pack of cigarettes... We're going to need to walk the government through this before we start to freak everybody more. out. I mean... We can't even tell people right now what they should be afraid of. We tried that with swine flu, and all we did was get healthy people scared. It's the biggest shopping weekend of the year. I think we need to consider closing the schools down. And who stays home with the kids? People that work at stores, government workers, people that work at hospitals. When will we know what this is? What causes it? What cures it? Things that keep people calm. What we need to determine is this. For every person who gets sick, 
how many other people are they likely to infect? So for seasonal flu, that's usually about one. Smallpox, on the other hand, it's over three. Now, before we had a vaccine, polio spread at a rate between four and six. Now, we call that number the R-naught. R stands for the reproductive rate of the virus. Any ideas what that might be for this? How fast it multiplies depends on a variety of factors. The incubation period. How long a person is contagious. Sometimes people can be contagious without even having symptoms. We need to know that too. And we need to know how big the population of people susceptible to the virus might be. So far that appears to be everyone with hands, a mouth, and a nose. Once we know the R-naught, we'll be able to get a handle on the scale of the epidemic. So it's an epidemic now. An epidemic of what? We send samples to the CDC. In 72 hours, we'll know what it is. If we're lucky. Clearly, we're not lucky. So we heard several people mention today, hone in on the target of what you want to communicate and have one message that you're very clear about. This is the message for uh, that film. In this um, uh, image, I'm showing, uh, in this slide, I'm showing you one image from a new film that will be on the Discovery Channel. Uh, this fall called Racing Extinction, uh, in which they are demonstrating the methane that's trapped beneath the uh, polar caps and the, um, and the exposure that those melting caps will give to additional methane in the atmosphere. Uh, not a good thing, but um, uh, it's a very interesting um, uh, film that's coming and uh, tells a story of uh, ocean species as well as species on land that are facing extinction and the role of humans in this. Well, I want to close by just um, uh, encouraging you to watch some of the uh, videos of uh, seminars that we've had through MediaX on science storytelling that look at the paradox of suspense or the contagion of ideas. Uh, it was mentioned earlier that the network of people is important. Yes, it is, but how that network is connected and how the message passes through them is also important. The power of participation and the personalization of narratives. People want to be put into the story. They want to take an active part in creating the story. Uh, we're now in the era of participation and of sharing and of the platform economy and the platform for science communication. I think is one that we need to develop. Thank you. Thank you for your patience. So um, I'm at the University of uh, Texas, and as Bruce said, sometimes the state is not that receptive to science, to science communication and science information, but I'm in the bubble known as Austin, and we are very receptive to, uh, to science uh, in, in that little bubble. So I'm going to talk about um, the role of visuals in effectively conveying um, science information, particularly when it comes to issues of sustainability. You've probably seen uh, uh, some of these images, maybe all of these images, but we have a lot of evidence out there that climate change is, is fundamentally altering things. Um, the top left is a picture of intensive cattle farming in Brazil. 
We have uh, pollution uh, in the water, the um, uh, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, and then a bird that died from eating a lot of plastic. Um, you, uh, in the Pacific, there is the, the, the plastic island. And so we have a lot of evidence that there are problems out there. And yet, um, when we take public opinion polls, you know, people express varying degrees of concern, varying degrees of interest in it. Um, but we have this gap between some attitudes and beliefs that people have and how willing they are to uh, act on, on those beliefs. And so this is just one example um, from the Pew Research Center. Uh, at the top, we have uh, people who believe that there's evidence that the Earth is warming. Uh, and then the second panel being uh, belief that it's a, a significant threat to the U.S. And when we look at the population as a whole, you know, we have this gap. 61% of Americans think it's, it's happening, uh, but 48% think that it's a threat. And that breaks down even more when we look at political ideology. Republicans and conservatives are much less likely to believe uh, in climate change uh, and even less likely likely to believe that it's actually a threat um, um, to us. Now, I study climate change, I study sustainability in the context of consumer behavior, in the context of these lifestyle choices, these consumer choices we make that can uh, either exacerbate climate change or help mitigate the, uh, the consequences of it. And I'm going to show you a little clip that I think uh, gives a nice uh, sense of what sustainable consumption is. I know we, we represent uh, a lot of different perspectives in this room, and so I come at it from a consumer behavior perspective. How many of you are familiar with the show Portlandia. Awesome. So this is a clip from uh, one of the earlier seasons. It's a very humorous take, but I think a great explanation of what sustainable consumption is. And that is not it. Hey guys. Hello. Hi, hello. My name is Dana. I'll be uh, taking care of you today. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, the chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland-raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this is, this is local? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to ask you just one more time, and it's local. It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board, organic. The hazelnuts, these are local. Uh, how big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? I'm sorry to interrupt. I have exactly the same question. Four acres. Mm -hmm. Give me just a second. Mm -hmm. I'll be right back, okay? Okay. Okay. Which is nice. We're doing the right thing. I'm too apologetic. You are. I, I drove way too slow here today, didn't I? No. I am so weird with that gas pedal. I think just moves the whole vehicle forward now. All right, so here is the chicken you'll be oh, enjoying tonight. You have this information. This is fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, his name was Colin. Here are his papers, okay? That's great. He looks like a happy little yeah. guy who runs around. A lot of friends, other chickens as friends. Putting his little wing around another one and kind of like you know, pawing around. I don't know that I can speak to that level of uh, intimate knowledge about him. Um, they do a lot to make sure that their chickens uh, uh, are very happy. When you say they, I mean, who are these people raising Colin? It's a farm that's located about uh, 30 miles south of Portland. And you feel, and you, I mean, would you have a good relationship with this farm? We I do. Mean, but it's not some guy on a yacht who lives in Miami oh, who's goodness, just no. saying that he's organic. It's just, it tears at the core of my being. 
being the idea of someone just cashing in on a trend like organic. No, I know the type. No. Yeah. Um, tell you what, we're going to go check it out if you don't mind. Just yeah. if you could hold our seats. Oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll be right back. We'll just want to make sure. It's you know, okay. Thank you so much, Dana. Sure, sure. an extreme example, um, a humorous example, but I, I think it, it gives you a good sense of, of what we mean by sustainable consumption. And here are some, some other examples, uh, environmentally friendly cleaning products, hybrid cars, um, diapers that are made with organic uh, material, even though they're still disposable and go to a landfill. Um, and it's not just about what you consume, but how you dispose of it as well, so recycling, uh, for example. But these kinds of, of consumer choices are increasing in popularity. You can buy organic food at Target. It's becoming much more mainstream at Walmart, for example. And it's seen by a lot of people, um, academics, uh, the lay public, as an effective way of dealing with the challenge of, of climate change. It's an effective way for us as individuals to try to do something um, to, to help the problem. And yet, just as with public opinion polls about climate change, we have this disconnect, this gap between what people say they value, their attitudes, and how they actually follow through on those values. So uh, this is a, a, a report done by Ogilvy & Mather, the, the advertising agency. Um, and they asked Americans, how important do you think uh, sustainable behaviors are? And a lot of people, 80% of Americans, say, yeah, it's important. I think it's something that we should be doing. But only 50% of them actually do that. Only 50% follow through. If we drill down a little more into specific kinds of sustainable behaviors, um, recycling, for example, that's considered to be very important. And that's one that a lot of people do. But if you look at the top, something like taking public transportation, riding a bike, or walking to work, work, you know, a majority of people, a, a solid number of people say, yeah, it's important to do, but very few of them actually do it. And I think that the problem here in terms of sustainable consumption, but also um, acting on, on climate change in general, believing uh, it, that it's happening and that it's caused by humans, I think the problem is our messaging, is how we, one of the problems is our messaging, how we communicate to the public about climate change. And as Jennifer had mentioned this morning, a lot of our campaigns tend to rely on this information deficit approach. If we just give people the science, if we give them the information, then they'll see the light and they'll change their minds, they'll change their behaviors. But we know that that doesn't work. And it's my contention um, that I think we need to focus on how we are conveying the information, not what. It's not just a question of, well, we need the science in there, but how are we presenting that information? And I think one area that um, we could uh, uh, see some, some potential is by relying on infographics, relying on compelling ways to present otherwise difficult to understand information, like science. Now, infographics um, date back thousands of years. Uh, they're very old. They're, they're increasing in popularity today, but they actually have a very long history. Uh, here's one of the earliest, uh, Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man from the 1400s. Um, but they're seeing a resurgence today. Uh, one reason is that they're highly shareable. It's very easy to forward an infographic uh, via Twitter or Facebook. And some studies have said that one infographic can reach 15 million people. So there's a wide audience for them. And they take various uh, forms. Here we have an infographic from USA Today. They're not necessarily the best ones, um, but they're, they're on the front of every issue of USA Today. 
Here we have one uh, from the New York Times. It's a beautiful infographic, uh, what goes into uh, the banh mi sandwich. Uh, beautiful, very descriptive. Uh, but infographics can be uh, much more explanatory as well. They can give you much more context and, and information. Another one from uh, the New York Times. And so my, my colleague, my grad student and I, we, we thought that we really need to look at infographics and, and study are they effective means of, of communication. And so we carried out a couple of studies which were a response to this call made uh, you know, in, in the late 90s that we need to turn a critical eye toward the functions, purposes, and effects of visual representation in the sciences. It's not just what we're saying, but how we're saying it. And so we were motivated by what is seen as this weakness in the information deficit model, a weakness that has been well-documented, well-established, and yet so many campaigns still rely on this idea, if people just knew, if we just gave them the right information, they'd change their minds. Um, but we believe, it's, it's our contention, that it's not what is being said, but how we're saying it. Uh, we drew on the uh, elaboration likelihood model as our, as our theoretical framework, the ELM is a, a dual processing model. It argues that when you're presented with information, uh, you can either process it centrally or uh, peripherally. If you process something centrally, you're going to be more engaged. Um, if you uh, change your attitude, that change is going to be more enduring. Or you can engage in peripheral processing. You don't really pay that much attention to it. You're not um, elaborating or thinking a lot uh, about the content of it. And generally, the ELM uh, puts texts, uh, text words, the, the written uh, element, as a central cue. If you see something that's written, you're going to process it centrally. And images tend to be lumped into this, oh, that's a peripheral cue. People don't spend a lot of time processing it. And uh, my grad student and I say, no, that's, that's not always the case. Images, visuals are, are very powerful, and they can have a very um, profound impact on, on audiences. And this is an idea idea that has a fairly long history to it as well. Uh, Lippmann understood uh, in his public opinion, he understood that, that visuals are very powerful. And we have this great quote, a leader or an interest that can make itself master of current symbols is master of the current situation. And certainly in advertising, which is where I uh, teach, these logos, these images, uh, these infographics are very powerful. You just have to see that Apple logo or the Nike swoosh and you know exactly what that, that image is trying to convey the message that goes along with it. Uh, we can draw neuroscience to know that visuals are actually processed uh, very quickly. They're processed first, they're processed faster, and they're oftentimes processed um, with more impact on attitude uh, formation and change than text is. Um, we, we also wanted to look at the moderating role of, of learning preferences and visual literacy. Uh, people like to learn. Uh, some people like to learn visually by images. Other people say, no, I learn better when I read something. And then we also have different levels of visual literacy, the ability to uh, create visual content, the ability to read it, to understand it. So we included those two as uh, moderating factors. So our study, we, we had a, a number of hypotheses. Um, the first one being that elaboration, people will think about, people will engage in with a message. Um, they'll elaborate more with an infographic message than with a text-based, a traditional, uh, here's a news story, here's some, some written text uh, about the issue. 
And we also argued that learning style matters. Visual learners are likely to engage in greater elaboration with an infographic, whereas verbal learners will engage uh, more so in a text-based message. And then, uh, as a research question, what role does visual literacy play? So here are infographics, and we took the issue of recycling. We presented information about recycling either as a text-based message or as the infographic. And we got uh, very interesting findings that people did elaborate more. They engaged in more issue-relevant thoughts for the infographic than they did for the text. Likewise, visual learners elaborated more with the infographic. Surprisingly, we did not find that verbal learners elaborated more with the text-based message. It was significant, but it wasn't in the direction that we anticipated. So what you see is that basically in the infographic condition, we see elaboration, people engaging in thoughts about the issue, uh, much higher than in the text-based story, the text-based condition. (laughs) Now, we wanted to um, do a second study just to confirm that it wasn't information redundancy. It wasn't that when you're presented with an infographic, it might actually have more information in it, and that's why you're elaborating more. So we introduced a third condition, Uh, this uh, much more visual-based condition. There's a little bit of text in there. There has to be. But we have three conditions now, text-based, infographic, and then much more of a purely uh, visual one. Uh, This one was about the topic of uh, genetically modified organisms uh, in food and whether they should be uh, labeled, uh, the requirement for labeling. So the same pattern of of hypotheses were were posed, that elaboration will be greater under these conditions, under the infographic condition, uh, and that it will be greater for visual learners, verbal learners as well, based on the results of the second experiment, and then what role does visual literacy uh, play? Again, we see that the infographic compared to the text-based version and the visual version uh, yields greater elaboration. People think about the issue. They think about the the content more in the infographic condition than in the text-based or the visual one. Uh, We see that there's no difference between the text and the visual. It's really the infographic condition that's driving that. Um, We did not see that um, visual learners elaborated more with the infographic, which we did with the first study. Uh, But we did see, again, this fact that verbal learners uh, elaborate more with the infographic condition. And we also see this interaction that the message format interacts with learning preferences. Individuals who are verbal learners are more likely to elaborate in that visual condition compared to uh, others. So just a, a visual display of of those findings. If you look at the panel on the left, we see that in that infographic condition, if you look at the pale gray lines, the verbal learners are more likely to elaborate in that infographic condition. Uh, There's no significant uh, difference for uh, the verbal learners. And then if you look at the panel on the right, if we look at visual literacy, the findings weren't significant, but the patterns are interesting. It suggests that the infographic condition yields more elaboration um, regardless of your visual uh, literacy. Among high and low uh, visually literate individuals, the infographic is better than the other two conditions. And so it leaves us with this conclusion that infographics matter. The way that we convey information, the visual component of it, um, it's important and it's it's fundamental. It yields greater issue-relevant thinking. People uh, engage with the topic. They have more relevant thoughts about it when we present the information uh, as an infographic. Uh, This is especially true for those who are uh, verbal learners and those with low visual literacy. It suggests that the infographic might be... uh, 
a universally um, useful form of communication compared to the, the traditional uh, text-based uh, kind of communication campaign. It really isn't the volume of information, but the format, that it's how we present it, not just what we're saying, but how we present that information. And it has important implications for message design, especially uh, in an era where we rely on social media, where we have blogs. Infographics are highly shareable. People want to forward them. It's easy to click and pass it on. So if you're developing a message, including the visual component, like an infographic, increases the odds that it will be shared, that people will uh, pass it on, and that that message will get across. And once people read it, they actually engage in it. They elaborate more with, with what the message is. And I will end it there. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.